everyone, and welcome to the Words on Fintech podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is the very talented and energetic Alexa Von Tobel, co-founder and managing partner at Inspire Capital, a $200 million early stage VC based in New York City, focused on backing founders with transformative ideas, brilliant teams, and relentless determination. The firm was also co-founded by Penny Pritzker, former U.S. Secretary of Commerce. Prior to Inspire Capital, Alexa founded LearnVest with the goal of helping people make progress on their money and later sold the company to Northwestern Mutual. We talked about Alexa's background and entrepreneurial journey, why she dropped out of Harvard Business School to build LearnVest, what it means to be the CEO of a large company and why she decided to sell it to Northwestern Mutual, why she loves hosting her own podcast, The Founders Project, and what led her to write two books, the reason behind the decision to build Inspire Capital in New York City, her outlook of the fintech ecosystem, working with President Obama, the importance of having a supporting spouse, and a whole lot more. Now join me in an inspiring conversation with Alexa Van Tobel. Well, Alexa, thank you so, so much for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Welcome. And maybe we can get started by hearing a bit about your background and the steps you took to get to where you are today. I always like to start by saying in almost every way, just a normal American. Um, I grew up in Florida and family of doctors and nurses worked really hard end up going to Harvard undergrad. And I think one thing that has always been really consistent about me is I really did know I was a flavor of an entrepreneur. I didn't have the language to call myself an entrepreneur when I was in high school, but I was constantly building things, starting things, excited about building things. And when I was in college, applied to business school at HBS, ended up getting in. I was one of the kind of early guinea pigs that they let apply right out of college. And I ended up deferring to go work actually at Insight Venture Partners and then Morgan Stanley. So started on the investing side. And from there, I started writing nights and weekends, a business plan for LearnVest because I had the problem. I was sitting there making my first income of my whole life and kind of said, hey, you know, I'd like to be really buttoned up about my own finances and had this aha moment where I said, how on earth is it possible that there's not some great digital solution for me as a 22-year-old? So wrote the business plan for LearnVest nights and weekends Then got a call of a good friend in the New York City tech scene. So this is 2007, who said, hey, I know you want to build LearnVest, but why don't you come help me build a company called Dropio, which was kind of a unique company in the file storage space. Went there. That company ended up getting acquired by Facebook. And I then had to go to HBS because they wouldn't let me defer any longer. And when I was there, the first semester of HBS was the fall of 2008. The world was falling apart. Lehman Brothers went under. And the business plan that I had been really kind of building and obsessing over nights and weekends for about a year and a half, I finally said, I have to go build it. And so I took a five-year leave of absence. I dropped out of HPS and moved to New York City as a sole founder to go build it. Basically worked really hard for five years, sold the business on our fifth birthday to Northwestern Mutual. We were financial planning for the masses. So think TurboTax meets financial planning. Sold the business for about $375 million. Turned 30 that year and had my first child. And then after all of that, I ended up, after I finished my three-year stint at Northwestern Mutual, 
got back to the investing side and launched Inspired Capital. So that's kind of the Inspired Capital now is an early stage fund, which we can talk a bit more about. But, you know, I basically was an investor turned serial entrepreneur turned now investor. And, you know, I still very much associate with myself as an entrepreneur. Talk about timing, right? To start a financial education company in 2008, when a lot of people are getting into financial trouble. I guess that's uh, an important part of the equation. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I will say that I think is really important is, you know, the prepared mind knows when you see the opportunity. So it wasn't like, a, oh, light bulbs went off and I said, oh, the world is falling apart. Let's go do this. You know, as I said, I had been working on uh, the strategy for about a year and a half. I wrote a 75 page business plan. And I remember the day Lehman Brothers went under, I had two friends get fired who had no savings. But, you know, meanwhile, there they were had, having graduated from places like really great Ivy League schools. And quickly, I remember thinking to myself, the amount of people around the country that are going to be fired because of this crisis that don't have enough savings, this is the world's best time to go launch a business that's going to help people in the moment of real crisis. And one thing, Miguel, that really goes through my mind is when everybody zigs, zag. When the world goes left, go right. And it's about having personal courage to do it, but I'd done the work. So it was a very thoughtful, calculated risk. It wasn't, I jumped off the cliff and said, I hope I have a parachute on the way down, but it was a wild decision as the world is literally falling apart to decide to leave a safe haven of Harvard Business School and cushy jobs and you know at least time to go build a, a startup as a sole founder at age 24. But it seemed like the right thing to do. Alexa, we often talk to founders and you know, it's not really an easy decision to sell a company. Yes, there is a big monetary reward as there was in your case, but this was also the company that you had been pouring your heart and soul into for half a decade. Was it a hard decision to sell well, so one thing, and I actually, you know, was just dealing with a company in our portfolio that was getting acquired and I was literally like hour by hour with the CEO through that acquisition. And one thing I think that people don't talk enough about is, you know, I took my job as CEO extremely seriously, which was your job as CEO is actually on behalf of all stakeholders of the company. And there's many stakeholders. You have your investors. So you have everybody who's ever given you a dollar. You have your employees who are a stakeholder of the company who had, you know, many tirelessly worked hard for years and years and years. And then you have your customers, right? Which yeah, at that point, we had almost 3 million users and people who'd signed up for LearnBest. And then finally, you have your board and your management team, right? And we, you know, I built the company out of a really genuine passion for financial literacy and trying to help the nation's wallet get smarter, having just watched so many people go through so many financial challenges and in fact, our last interview at, at LearnBest, when we would hire you, the last interview question would always be, tell us a time that money has really stressed you or your family out. And there's not a person that would come interview with us that didn't have just literally gobs of stories of my aunt, my uncle, my brother, my parents, you know, everybody, right? You know, money, financial stress touches everybody. And so when we were faced with this really proactive acquisition interest, the CEO of Northwestern Mutual is just the most wonderful guy, John Schlifsky. And they have 5 million families that they were going to be able to give the software to. And they delivered a million financial plans a year. 
for LearnBest to do that, it would have taken me years and years and years. And I felt like we'd built something really special that if we could actually go and give it to a company that does $40 billion in revenue and overnight could actually make the software available to everybody faster, that was the right thing to do. And we only had about 100-ish financial planners around LearnBest, and they had 8,000. So that was the other thing is the ability overnight to put this in the hands of 8,000 advisors who could help more people. It was just the right thing to do with our software. So one, I took it very seriously. You know, I didn't make my personal decision until the morning that all the docs were lined up and I had to decide if I would sign as the CEO. But my job was to think on behalf of our investors, our employees, many of whom's lives we changed permanently, and then also our customers. And so I took it really seriously. In fact, I would say I was almost the weight of the decision. It was never about me. It was really about all the people I was responsible for financially, legally, emotionally. And I took it really seriously. Anyway, so there was a lot of emotions that get tied up in a decision like that is my point. We'll talk about Inspire Capital in a second. But before going there, I want to talk a bit about your media side because you are a podcast host with the Founders Project. You're also a best-selling author with, if I'm not mistaken, not one, but two books, Financially Fearless and Financially Forward. Why do you enjoy this media, this content creation front? And I'm asking as a fellow podcaster. <laughs> no, yeah, your podcast is incredible. I Well, so a few things. One, I love people. So, you know, my podcast, I host Inc., Inc.'s main podcast, literally called The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel, where, you know, we're going into our third season where I get to talk to amazing CEOs around the country and learn what makes them tick. And honestly, I'm fascinated by it. It comes from such genuine interest. You know, I was a young CEO. The one big joke about being a CEO is it's the only job that gets harder, the better you get at it. So the better you are running and building a company, the harder your job gets because the more successful the company gets, the more complexity that gets put on your shoulders. And so I think the Lord that I, I had an executive coach, I had people who helped me and I had so many things that I had to emotionally overcome and get better at. So one, I love talking to founders for that reason. And I used to have a, a radio station on Sirius XM radio too, where it was called Financially Fearless with Alexa Von Tobel, where we talked about your wallet. And then my books, um, Financially Fearless and then later Financially Forward, I had so much fun writing. It really, like, I love the creation process. And if you can't tell it, you know, I said at the top of this interview, I'm an entrepreneur to my core. I'm a builder. I like to build things. And, you know, I'm so proud of what we're building in Inspired Capital. And I do see it as my kind of life's work for the next many, many decades. But I like to build. And I love the creation of building something unique and special with a lot of soul and authenticity. Great. And so you went on, I guess, to build another company, which is Inspire Capital, right? Which is a bit of a different type of company. I mean, it's a venture fund, but it's still a very much an entrepreneurial project. And particularly since you're the founder, talk about that transition, I guess, going back into the investing side, but this time armed with years of entrepreneurial experience. So, you know, I, when you sell your business as a founder, you tend to have a lockup period where you kind of commit to stay. And I had the world's best time. I really did at Northwestern Mutual. I stayed for almost four years. I was supposed to stay for three. I actually had such a good time. I stayed longer. And my last day there, 
the next day, literally that day that I left was the day we announced Inspired Capital and basically got into business. And Inspired Capital was something that, as I said, I I am really a builder, but also it has to come from a really authentic place in me because for something to be something that is worth not being with my children and my husband, it means it has to be something I really believe in and I really care about. And having been a kid, literally a kid, I was 22, 23 in the New York City tech ecosystem. One, I kept asking myself, why do I have to keep getting on planes to fly west to go get capital? Because I am in New York City. Like this is New York City. It's a capital of the planet. Why isn't there more capital here as I was building businesses? And you know, I look at New York City as truly a premier capital of many verticals in life, from fintech to health tech to even blockchain, culture, media, arts, food, retail. You know, this is the design capital of the world. It's the media capital of the world. And I kept being like, why is all of those categories are being innovated and disrupted deeply? Is there not more premier capital here in New York? And as somebody who loves New York and plans to live here for a really long time, I kind of said, one day I want to come back and build a really special firm here. And I could do that for free. And I actually have my husband to thank because one day he was, you know, I started investing a ton after I sold LearnBest, you know, in great companies like Lemonade and Airtable and Tally and Splice and Ethos and, you know, many, many more, RigUp. And my husband said, you literally would invest in companies nights and weekends for free and you love nothing more than actually being a trusted friend of the founder when they're going through what is always brutal challenges, right? Being a CEO is brutal. And so it is one day my husband and I were chatting and it was just obvious, so obvious to him that this is what I would do for free. And that's meant I should do it for a living to get back into the investing side. And so I did and Inspired Capital was born. And what makes our firm really unique is it's a $200 million fund. We're seed in series A. So basically very early stage. We invest in all categories. So we look at everything. And one thing that's really special about the firm's partnership is first, it's a group of people that have known each other 20 years to 11 years. So it's really, really, really longstanding culture. You know, people like Penny Pritzker, who put Obama in the White House and, you know, is herself a very real serial entrepreneur as the former Secretary of Commerce of the United States. She's on the board of Microsoft. And I'd met her when President Obama had asked me to be an ambassador to the country on entrepreneurship. To people like Lucy DeLand, who is one of my absolute best friends from Harvard undergrad. She was a co-founder of Paperless Post, also worked at Insight Venture Partners. And she and I, I'd always hoped would start something together because she was the person I admired so much when I was building companies. And she was the person I went to when I had a severe crisis where I said, oh my gosh, I really need to solve this problem. Help me. And then a gentleman by the name of Mark Batsian, who he and I were together 11 years building LearnVest and then investing. And he's just an absolute brilliant mind. And so it's just a really unique group of people. But together between us, we've built and scaled 10 businesses. We've sold businesses. We've helped be publicly traded companies to companies that have gone public to private, et cetera, et cetera. So that's pretty fun. And as I said, it was just, it literally one day like came out of my heart. It was like inspired capital should exist. And then once I know something I love, I can't look back and we began building it. And so again, fund one's up, we're halfway through it and we're having the time of our lives and we're working tirelessly, truly, but it doesn't feel like work because it really is something we love so much. Sounds like a stellar team. And you're not just investing, you're also incubating a few companies, right? 
Yeah. Um, so one of the things that we always say that we'll do is we call it the inspiration check. And it really is businesses that are very, very specific. So you know, we're not an accelerator. We don't continue to incubate businesses over. I think building a business is extremely hard, right? Once you've done it, you actually know the amount of, it's a science and an art, right? You need the business plan, you need the strategy, but then you need the group of humans who are going to tirelessly commit themselves to that strategy. And then you need timing to be right, right? So so anyways, we've been part of one, what I call inspiration check so far. We, ha- we, we can't talk too much about it publicly, but it's a really interesting play in the fintech space. And the CEO is somebody who was on my team and my management team for about a decade who I have known for a really long time. So it's a really special team. The company is called Aurum. And uh, they're going after a big part of money movement in the country because money movement is actually pretty broken. And then additionally, so anybody out there is thinking about starting a company and wants kind of a, a SWAT team of people who love to build businesses as a reference, please come to chat with us at Inspired Capital. You know, our depth of experience of building businesses from zero to series C is pretty vast and we love to do it. So come chat with us. And Alexa, talking a little bit about the fintech ecosystem, I mean, you started LearnVest at a time where I guess fintech was just getting started, 2009, and you've kind of been in the front row for the evolution of the industry. Can you take us through the state of fintech back in 2009 to what you're seeing today and what gets you excited? Sure. So fintech, first of all, when I started LearnVest, fintech that was not a word. You didn't call it fintech yet. And you know, I remember there was a Forbes cover that they put me on and it was about the millennial gold rush. And it was about the you know 20 companies that had been built for the next gen consumer of fintech. And at that time, fintech was really what I'm going to call this my own language of kind of describing it, but it was like fintech 1.0. So you had learned as, again, it was novel, but it wasn't that novel. Like when I look back at it, I didn't think it was that wild. We basically just took an old concept and just made it fresher, right? It was very straightforward. It was, let's go take financial planning and advice. So take TurboTax and make it for financial planning, make it for everybody, digitize as much of it as you humanly can so that you take all that time off the person, make it open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and make the price of what it costs extremely transparent and do it all digitally relatively straightforward concept. But at the time, it was really, really novel. Banks weren't open on the weekends at that time, many. If you wanted to talk to a financial planner, it had to be between the hours of nine and five, which didn't work for young people trying to work hard. I mean, it was just really straightforward. So FinTech 1.0, in my mind, was about taking the big incumbents and just digitizing them. You know, I always remind people, the iPhone isn't that old, right? It's been around for, call it, north of a decade, but that's not that long, right? So Fintech 1.0 is about just digitizing it. I think now in 2020, we're living in what I'm going to describe as Fintech 2.0, which is just dramatically different in that you now have, first of all, dozens of Fintech categories. So InsureTech, Fintech, payments, infrastructure, B2B, B2C, uh, consumer Fintech, business Fintech. But then beyond all of that, you know, credit, et cetera, you then actually have Companies like an Orem, for example, that are just redefining the infrastructure of fintech because which will unlock more and more and more innovation in the future. You know, I'm a certified financial planner, as you mentioned, you know, best-selling author on this topic. 
I think one of the things that's really obvious to me is the future of our wallets gets rid of so much friction, okay? So in general, right now, there's too much friction around money. To move money from one place to the other often takes five days. I mean, think about the wires, the documents you need to sign all. It's just painful, right? Additionally, most Americans, and by most, I truly mean most, close to the 90% of the country, 78% live paycheck to paycheck. That's pre-COVID. So post-COVID, it's way worse. You've got 20 plus million people on unemployment, et cetera, et cetera. Why don't we have self-driving wallets? Why don't we? Why don't we have the ability for algorithms to run our financial decisions? Because for me, money's emotional and you actually want to get rid of the emotions. So those things are very obvious to me that will exist. But the infrastructure needs to exist to do that. And so what you're starting to see is so many companies innovate at the infrastructure layer. And I call it FinTech 2.0 because it's no longer about just taking the incumbents and making them fresher and more digital and putting a, a new front end on it. It's actually going all the way through the stack, building full stack technologies. But then beyond that, actually going to the core infrastructure of what makes money run in this country, if not the planet, but let's just focus on America, and then making it go faster, more seamlessly, more transparently, more securely, so that we can then build a new, what I'm going to call the future, FinTech 3.0 innovation layer on top of this infrastructure and this new system. Yeah, I love that term, the self-driving money, self-driving wallet. I know Andy Ratcliffe from Wealthfront talks a lot about that. And you know, what are some, I guess, some interesting companies or perhaps uh, verticals within FinTech 3.0 that you are paying, I guess, special attention to? Great question. So first, I would just say a few things. As I mentioned, I'm extremely interested in automation of the American wallet because for me, it is deeply obvious that that will happen. Number two, I'm really interested in the future of InsureTech. And the reason for that is the way that we think about types of insurance, I almost think is just in itself quite outdated. As a human, you walk through your life and you just want to make sure that nothing catastrophic can happen that could make you go bankrupt or make your family go bankrupt. That's at the simplest, that's what the concept of insurance is. But we have so much more information about where you are, what you're doing. We all wear these devices. I'm wearing my Fitbit today that lets you know where you're tracking, if you're doing anything, how fast you're moving. So the fact that we just haven't made insurance much more nimble, much cheaper, much, much more relevant to the way that we live our lives as two working parents in 2020, as opposed to in 1970, a single working parent often, where if one person passes away, it's catastrophic. So InsureTech just generally is a place I'm very interested. I'm going to call it, I call it liquefied money. That's frictionless money. It's really straightforward. But why do we get paid every two weeks? That makes no sense. You work every day. You work every hour. The majority of the country lives paycheck to paycheck because we get paid every two weeks or every week. That makes no sense, right? If, if people could have access to the money that they've earned and deserve hourly, you would be in a position where people are better off. And I really do believe that. So those are elements of consumer fintech that we're interested in. On the flip side, you know, there's a company that actually is announcing in the next few days that I'm an investor in that is going to the core of the innovation problem because oftentimes you can't get access to big financial institutions to be able to use things like their balance sheet, et cetera, to innovate. And so big, big thinkers are going to the core of the problem and in innovating there. You know, we're looking at crypto and particularly blockchain tokenization, et cetera. 
Another big area I'm really interested in is security. And there's a company I personally invested in called IDME. And in the future of how we think about security is really critical. So all of that, it gives you a flavor of the breadth. But honestly, I'm looking for a relentless, thoughtful entrepreneur who's deeply committed to a vision and has a unique perspective on the future that's going to be a decade out, that's going to run like the wind to go build it. And those are the founders I want to help and and support. And having had the experience, uh, we're almost at the end of the year, but it's uh, because the elephant in the room is that it's been a very chaotic year, particularly due to COVID, but you've continued investing. You haven't stopped. You've actually been very active. What have been some of the surprises of 2020 from an investing point of view? You know, as I said at the beginning, when everybody zigzag, Inspired Capital is extremely thoughtful long-term capital. You know, one of the benefits of standing up our firm was we know we're here to stay in business for a really long time. I signed up to do this for the next 30 years. And so one, we're really long-term thinkers, truly. Two, we look at a year like COVID as an asymmetric opportunity to create some really unique companies, but COVID didn't scare us. We didn't take our fingers off the execution button because of COVID. We actually leaned all the way in, in March. And we basically said, virtual diligence is here to stay. Let's perfect it. Let's figure out how to make sure entrepreneurs get to really meet us and know us and know what we're all about. Because at the end of the day, it really is about the entrepreneur. It's their life. I always joke, it's not their job. It's not their passion. It's literally their entire life is building a business because that's what it takes to do it successfully. And so it's about making sure we could be there for them. But you know, at this point, we've made this year nearly a dozen investments. We've been extremely active. And to remind you, if you step back and look at the S&P 500 and you think about the top kind of 500 basket of companies we use for the S&P, about half of them were born in a moment of extreme crisis. Some of your best companies in the world get built in what I call these moments of asymmetric dislocation. And um, Miguel, my motto of this entire year was that we started the year in 2020 and we're ending it in 2030. We just absolutely digitized this year rapidly. We all broke many habits that got digitized rapidly. And so what we've been spending a lot of time thinking about is what are the businesses that just have an unfair advantage for the future because of COVID? What are the businesses, regardless of COVID, that are just big, thoughtful, smart ideas? And those are the sort of businesses we we like to back. Alexa, I believe we haven't talked to a guest on this show that has personally worked with a former U.S. president. You mentioned working with President Obama. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, first of all, I was like the kid that they invited, and I truly was in awe. But no, President Obama and Secretary Pritzker, now uh, you my business partner, Penny Pritzker, when they were in the White House and she was Secretary of Commerce, you know, they were really big thinkers. They said, let's find ways to think around the world. And one of the things that the United States is so unique about is, and one of the reasons I love this country so much is, you know, this really is a place for dreamers. It's people to come build big businesses. And it's the American dream that we all know deeply. It's burned into our hearts. And that really is the dream of entrepreneurship. And if you think about job creation, it's not the small companies. It's not the coffee shop on Main Street that adds one employee. It's not the Microsoft that adds a thousand employees. It's actually the entrepreneurs who take a company from zero or one 
to 10,000 that really create jobs in this country, right? It's the startups that become massive businesses that are, are where job creation happens. And so one, I believe in America deeply, and I was really proud, but basically Penny Pritzker and President Obama said, let's go take 10 of our you know, thinkers, our, our innovators, and let's go export them to the world and let's make them ambassadors to the country. And so I was tapped as a page Presidential Ambassador on Global Entrepreneurship is what Paige stood for. And we got to travel with the White House. And that's how I really got to know Penny and we became friends. But I'll just tell you, President Obama is just incredible. He literally fist pumped me. You know, you just, you know, a special person when you see one. And anyways, I was just really grateful. And, you know, it impacted me. It was 20 something at the time in a big way. It made me really, really proud to be part of this country. Fascinating, really fascinating. And one more thing I wanted to ask, Alexa, that you mentioned, and that uh, sounds like your husband has played an important role supporting you. Oh my God, my husband's the best. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. I think that's a side you don't get to hear often from entrepreneurs. Yeah, first of all, what a layup here. My husband is the best human. I always joke with when people meet him. I always have to say, you're not allowed to like him more than you like me because he's the most likable human. But no, I met my husband in college. He was the grade above me, undergrad. He's for sure the smartest guy I've ever met. And uh, he's also a big thinker and really strategic, but also more importantly, very entrepreneurial. And he has been in the investing space for 15 years. And we always joke. And I, I actually, again, back to kind of connecting with entrepreneurs you know, I often like look at the spouse of a founder. They're the co-founder. Let's be really honest, right? The number of sleepless nights that I went through, the number of times my husband woke up with me because I was sick over something, truly just so worried. He's picked me up at the airport three times where I was flying back and there was like a crisis and he just could tell I was really fragile because it was just so much stress. So I think one of the things that's really special about being a founder, if you're married or partnered up with somebody, there's no way that that other person isn't deeply responsible for the success of something that's happened deeply. And so we approach our whole life as a partnership. Everything that he does, I get to take some credit for. And for sure, everything I've ever done, he should take most of the credit for. But you know, we really just view everything as kind of fluid. And you may have a point person on somebody, but everybody's working for whatever the, the strategy is. And we have fun. I think that's an important thing to say is, you do your best work if you're having fun and it not every minute of work can be fun but if you if you can teach yourself and train yourself to take a deep breath and just remember that the highs are never really that high and the lows are never really that low you end up normalizing over time and i think that was the thing that was hardest for me personally to get good at is i am emotional it's a blessing and a curse you know i'm passionate i believe in things i'm not a robot in fact probably the farthest from being a robot and you know my husband is really really steady and a lot of that wore off on me over time which has been wonderful so i owe everything to him I'm so glad I asked. And so, Alexa, before we let you go, we always love to ask our guests about some of their personal side. And maybe you can tell us a bit about your hobbies and what are some of your favorite hobbies outside of work. And also, I imagine that answer might have changed a little bit this year. Yeah. Um, well, so I'll, I'll start by saying, you know, I really do joke that I only do two things. I have my family. I have three little kids, my husband and I. I have a five-year-old, a two-year-old, and a one-year-old. So that pretty much takes up every single spare minute of life. 
But I always joke, I only have two things. I have inspired capital and I have my family. And I joke because I, first of all, I do actually have tons of hobbies, but I don't really do them because my biggest hobby outside of work is still entrepreneurship. I live for founders. I live for ideas. I love learning. I love listening to people talk about the future. So in short, that's that. That said, my, you know, the things I, I will do if I'm not literally working or with my kids, I love exercise, all shapes and forms. I'm an activities person. I'm always up for a run or a jog or a walk or a hike, or I just love moving and realize it's really important for my emotional well-being. And then I love design. My husband jokes that if I wasn't doing this, I admire so many designers. I love building things. So I love people who make things. And whether it's architecture or actual interior designs, I have a lot of respect and a lot of admiration for that entire category and just have so much fun watching it. So if you're ever in my house, I think you'll appreciate how much I love design. And then finally, I love anything where I'm with friends or people. I'm truly an extrovert, if you can't tell. (laughs) I'm just, you know, and, and so any free minute I have It's not a moment where I'm catching up on sleep. It's I'll call a friend or FaceTime a friend or a family member because I I love people. Well, Alexa, I'm a fan. And thank you so much for joining. This has been truly, truly fascinating. And I mean that I've enjoyed it. Our audience will be mesmerized, I'm sure. And, you know, I know this is uh, not your MBA school, but still Wartha is now, you know, you're a friend of Wharton and you're always invited to join us on campus. So thank you again, Alexa. Thank you so much, Miguel. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 